All right. What's up, everybody? We got a special episode today. We are here with Dr. Richard Feenstra. He's an educational psychologist. He, he's humble, though. He just prefers to go by Rich or Richard. So um, I'm going to let him introduce himself a little bit. We were chatting a little to get started here. We've also got Diego, um, the owner of Keep Talking, on with us as well. Um, but I think this is going to be a fun episode. Um, thank you for being with us, Richard. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess as far as introductions go, uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, maybe around uh, 20 years ago, I became interested in decision-making. Um, at the time, I was a police officer, and I would respond to calls, and it just began to fascinate me, uh, both on the side of the first responders as well as the people we were trying to help, uh, You know how we were making these decisions. And so I went to school, to get a master's degree and I got a degree in uh, human resource development, basically workforce training. And then an opportunity came to go to Las Vegas and work for the county and at the same time pursue a PhD uh, from the Department of Educational Psychology. So I did that and my focus was on uh, learning how we learn and how we learn to make better decisions. And uh, from that, I, uh, after I graduated, I actually had enough time to, uh, for draw retirement. So it was about 2010, the, the housing market had crashed and uh, I was looking to grow. I was looking to do something different. Uh, so I sold everything, uh, packed a carry-on bag and a personal bag, and I've been basically living the digital nomad lifestyle uh, ever since. So uh, technically since 2012, I've been uh, living out of uh, a couple of bags, and uh, I've been teaching a lot of courses online. Uh, if you haven't heard of Udemy, uh, it's an uh, online learning platform. And um, over the years, I've gotten about 200,000 students uh, from 165 countries, and I've got a small little YouTube channel, Decision Skills, uh, that I put up little videos about decision making. And uh, over the years, I've, uh, at least I hope, that I've learned a little bit about the art and science of decision making. Well, you and I definitely see eye to eye on a few things, including the fact that the digital nomad lifestyle is fun. I'm not doing I did a little bit of that lifestyle in my 20s. I'm not doing it anymore, but at least not currently. Um, so, let, OK, let's talk about that decision. Actually, what made you decide that you wanted to be a, a digital nomad? You talked a little bit about the housing market crash, but um, it's not something that's super common for someone who already, you know, uh, has a, a really a high position in life. You know, PhD is, is has reached the I guess the financial position that you would probably reached as well well what led you what were the factors that led you to that decision well um yeah you're right it was multiple factors and in fact that's one of the big things in decision making is a lot of times we try to assign a uh, cause to a single factor when it's almost always going to be multiple factors and uh really it was a decision that was made um after uh finishing my PhD, I was asking myself, well, what's next? And I went to the people I, I was working with 
And uh, they were very upfront and straightforward about it. They said, well, really in this organization, there's little upward mobility because um, as you pointed out, I mean, you know, organizational structures are typically a pyramid. There's only so many positions at the top. And they basically said in this organization, we really just don't need anybody that has a PhD in educational psychology. Um, and on top of that, there was the housing market. Uh, on top of that, uh, my father had been in the military. And so we moved around every two years or so. And so I had been in Las Vegas about 11 years at the time. And I was starting to get an itch because I, I just did not you know, feel comfortable staying in one place. And then I had to look at my uh, current situation that I was single, no kids. So there was nothing tying me down. And I also had a, and I still have a mentor. Uh, his name's Peter Tarlow. And he r runs a tourism safety consulting business. And he travels all over the world. And he told me, he says, well, if you can learn how to speak Spanish, then, uh, you know, I can use you in more locations. And I asked him, I said, well, how, how should I learn to speak Spanish? Should I use Rosetta Stone or, uh, you know, should I go to a university class? And he says, oh, no, you need to do immersion Spanish. And so he recommended Bogota, Colombia, and to do it for just at least a month. And so I was just, you know, I'd finished my PhD. I was looking how to grow. What's my next opportunities? And uh, just all of those factors came together for me to say, hey, look, I've got nothing tying me to Las Vegas. Um, let's go out and, you know, do this, uh, this other path in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's interesting, too. Well, just in terms of decision making, like what you said at the beginning of that, of how, you know, people like, well, I guess, it's, you know, you said we look for a cause or almost kind of like we, we look at it like there's only one factor when with every decision in life there, you know, there are multiple factors and things that influence it, it seems. Um, now, what about, okay, because obviously your like original interest in it was related to, I guess I might call it like more urgent, like life or death decisions, whether it's military related, you know, working with firefighters, whatever. Um how, like, what did you learn about decision-making from that experience? How does it apply to, you know, decision-making for most of us in the mundane world that aren't dealing with life or death decisions that often? You know, I guess you can answer this kind of however you like. Yeah, well, actually, it was um, exactly that that took me down the path of discovering what's called uh, naturalistic decision-making. And I, I kind of tripped across it, uh, or maybe it was just the inevitable result of uh, you start with looking into rational decision-making because the idea of rational decision-making is everywhere. Uh, most books, most college courses, uh, there's this idea that rational decision-making is the best way to make a decision and that we should follow this uh, rational model, these stepped or, or phased models of step one, do this, step two, do this. And um, later on, I, I found out, I came across a book called How Professionals Make Decisions. And when I read that book, it really resonated with how we made decisions as first responders. And then I found out through that, that there was a, a different type of decision making uh, called naturalistic decision-making. And I found there's an organization 
that that's what they that's the approach that they take to investigating decision making. And they do look at how we make decisions naturally under real world conditions. And one of the criticisms and one of the reasons that that organization was born was back in the 70s, the military was actually struggling with the application of using rational models because they were trying to teach their their officers to use these rational templates to make better decisions. And it's just, it just doesn't work under those conditions. And uh, so anyway, um, I reached out to some of the people in the naturalistic decision-making community. They gave me some more material. And basically, I began to, to learn more and more about that type of decision-making. And naturalistic decision-making really does fit better uh, is able to explain how uh, just day to day, not not necessarily under conditions of uh, emergency or crisis, but how we make decisions through a process of simply uh, recognition. And so there's a model called the recognition prime decision model. And in that model, you basically make sense of the situation and you're looking for certain cues. And these cues are something like, you know, uh, the relevant relevant cues, plausible goals. You're looking to see if anything violates your, your expectancy. And then you're looking for a potential action, something that you can do. And um, we see that all the time. Okay. Now, um, it's interesting when you say uh, kind of just that rational decision making didn't really apply to a lot of those first responder situations. I assume maybe incorrectly, but I, I guess my, my first thought is, oh, well, it must be because it's too time consuming and you don't have time to think through things or you need to be more, um, you know, uh, just kind of be more intuitive or almost instinctive. Like when I hear the word naturalistic decision making, that's the first thing I think of. It's like, oh, this is just a more in the moment in trust your instincts type of thing. Is that kind of in the ballpark or is it not exactly like that? Well, it, it's in the ballpark, definitely in the ballpark. But what's interesting is uh, uh, his name's Gary Klein and he actually is the you can say the father of um, the recognition prime decision model and arguably the father of, of naturalistic decision making. And it, he kind of fights back against this idea that, uh, you know, the myth that ra rational, uh, that recognition prime decision making or naturalistic decision making is purely about the intuitive. In fact, in his model, uh, you you have both intuitive and deliberative components to the model, but uh, people tend to focus, and understandably so, they focus in on the intuitive component of it because it 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 doesn't focus on the rational. And then the 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 time element is, uh, and I hope you're not picking up the weed eater in the back here that just seems to have uh, yep. popped up. I can't hear. Um, okay. Okay. Good. But um, the and it, and it does make sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. How about I, this right. I, I I I now car alarm started going off. So we we uh, hear you loud and clear. Uh, just you know, with almost no background noise, at least from. Oh, okay. Perfect. So. Okay. Then from yeah, now on, I I won't. Uh, 
I won't worry about what's going on in my background because it's probably you know, hard anyway. for you to keep focused, but, but yeah, we hear you well. At least I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it's like it throws my focus off. Because yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here, and all of a sudden, this car alarm goes off. Yeah, but no. Um, so you know, back to the point that um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that uh, that time we see time is what is our our biggest block to the to making rational decisions, but that's not always the case. In right. fact, what is interesting about the rational approach is that the 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 method that they use in order to determine what is or is not a rational decision is they've got this uh, this three pronged uh, method where you have description, normative, and prescription. So descriptive, prescriptive, and normative. And so the first part is to describe how people actually make decisions. And then normative is to determine, well, what is the correct answer? What is the optimal answer that the people should be making? And then prescriptive is, okay, we have a gap between, you know, how they are making the decisions and the decision they should make. And that's what we're going to call decision error. And a lot of times it's, it's also known as a decision bias or cognitive bias. But the problem with that is that in a, a lot of times we there is no correct answer. How do you have a normative answer, an optimal or correct answer uh, in a natural environment, number one, number two, in a novel environment that you've never faced before? Um, so again, there's a difference in the approach. So it's not just about the time. It's that a lot of times in our natural environments, there is no normative, correct, optimal answer. The only way we can determine that is getting a whole bunch of people together and uh, you know, trying to come up with um, some standard uh, that we need to then say, okay, well, if you don't meet this standard, then you've made a decision error. I see. And, and help me out again real quick, because I hear that term cognitive bias a lot, but I don't think I've ever really understood exactly what it means. What, in your words, what is cognitive bias? Well, it's deviation from the normative standard. It's deviation from the way we're supposed to, the answers we're supposed to make. And this is, you know, I respect and I agree with uh, 90% of the the results and outcomes and the underlying idea behind rational decision making that that yes um you know there are errors we make um based on this idea that um you know there are certain biases that exist out there but the problem is especially when we go into the mainstream is we've gotten to the point where bias is considered a four-letter word. It's you don't want to have any bias, um, and in fact, it's gotten to the point that they have conflated uh, things such as racial bias, which is seen as you know certainly negative, with all sorts of other cognitive bias, which may not necessarily be negative, and in fact, a lot of times bias serves an adaptive function. And so one of the other things to recognize or to realize is that along with rational decision making, it parallels and uh, all of the work of, say, Daniel Kahneman and Tversky and uh, his book, 
Thinking Fast and Slow. I mean, great book, great work, really outlines bias. But the idea, the underlying fundamental idea behind it, it takes us away from being uh, homo sapiens and we are homo economicus. We're these economic decision makers that we're supposed to make these decisions based on our our, uh, best economic interest. And if we don't, then we're biased. And, but, but that's not necessarily the case. Bias can actually be good. Mm -hmm. It's adaptive. There's a reason we have bias. There's a positive reason that over thousands of years, if we look at evolutionary psychology, that bias has uh, come into existence. Okay. And so I'm, I'm thinking of a couple different things here because I think a lot of times um, when, when I think about like making decisions, like I like the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to make a rational decision. And, and obviously I haven't studied the topic to understand, you know, the rational versus naturalistic decision-making, but I say to myself, okay, I want to be rational and or logical rather than emotional, for example, because, and I've probably said this on this podcast before, like a lot of the times the mistakes, quote unquote, I've made in life are when I'm thinking too emotionally and not rationally enough, right? So like, that's kind of, that's, that's what interests me about it is because like what I hear is um, we shouldn't necessarily always just be logical and rational and that there, there is like bias. Well, like the way I'm seeing it, and maybe this is not the correct way to interpret it, but the way I'm seeing it is bias is almost like allowing us to use our emotions in a certain way or is is bias based on other things or I'm, i mean i'm not sure what you think of all that or if i'm totally off the mark here with my thoughts but that's kind of how i'm i'm hearing things i don't know yeah i, I get what what you're saying and um that is also a, a, a strong idea behind rational is to to eliminate emotion and you can see this definitely from uh it, it aligns itself very well with what's happened over the last several decades in which we kind of follow the computer model and we we talk about thinking and decision making in terms of uh, the same terms that we use with uh, computers such as you know working memory and so forth and then you you look at uh, what we see on TV you see Star Trek and, you know, Spock is the logical, uh, you know, decision maker or the detective is deducing and, you know, n- no emotion evol- involved. And uh, to this day, we struggle to include emotion in decision making research because, uh, you know, in the 40s, 50s, and let's just go as late as the 60s, um, we were really focused on behaviorism and behaviorism basically said, look, um, cognition and emotion, it doesn't, uh, we don't even need to worry about it. We just need to look at the behavior and stimulus response and, and so forth. And then people came along in the, you know, 50s, 60s and 70s, 80s, and, and maybe up until today and said, well, look, no, you know, we have to consider cognition. And so we shifted away from like a pure behaviorism to start incorporating more and more cognition. But we are at a stage that's called cold cognition. And cold cognition really isn't looking at those emotions 
such as anger and fear, the strong emotions um, and how those emotions will impact our decisions. But we do know that there really is no such thing as a purely rational decision because your emotion is always going to be there. It's going to be under the surface in one way or the other driving or participating in the decision-making process. And so we're just now getting into looking at how can we start to research uh, hot cognition in decision-making. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but um, you know, I, I'll tell you one just to, because I'm really interested in this part is uh, the emotion of regret in decision-making. Mm. Okay. Um, go on because I'm curious about this because I hear some people say, and I tend to use this myself is that regret is your guideline. Like whatever we regret in the past, we use it to say, okay, or, or we can almost like think about future regret. Like if I make this decision, I know I'm going to regret this or vice versa. Um, but yeah, elaborate on that a little bit with regret and decision-making. Right. So I think, um, what's interesting about regret and as I was doing, you know, research on discovering um, regret in re relationship to decision making, uh, it can go, it can influence some of our thought process with the political, certain political environments that we're dealing with today, uh, which is about at what age should a, a person be able to make uh, a decision. And what's interesting is that regret is an emotion directly tied to decision-making. So we do not experience regret if we do not personally feel some sort of responsibility for the outcome. So we might, we might feel disappointment if something happens, but if it's outside of our control, we don't necessarily experience the pain of regret. And regret is a painful emotion. Now, go ahead. I was just going to say, I might be jumping way ahead here, but I'm guessing this is a big part when we were talking before we started recording. I'm guessing this is a part of why you say you kind of disagree with where educational psychology is going is the fact. Yeah, I mean, yeah. partly, partly because um, the research on regret, uh, I, I wish I could remember uh, the, the, the names of the, the primary researchers. It really wasn't part of um educational psychology, if, if, if I remember correctly. But the what the authors found or what the researchers have found is that regret is an emotion that doesn't actually, the experience of regret doesn't actually develop in children until the ages of around three to five years old. So around three to five years old, you can, you know, you can ask a child to make a decision. And then when you show them the outcome, they can experience the pain of, oh man, I wish I would have taken the other option. If I would have taken the other option, I would have gotten a bigger piece of cake. But uh, to your point about future regrets, at the ages of three to five, yes, they can experience the pain of regret, but they cannot yet anticipate regret. Okay. And so they continue to do these experiments and they switch it up a little bit and they you know, put another... A variable in there and they say okay well you know what do you hope is in you know in the future you know what in, in this box what do you hope's in there and it takes from about the ages of nine to eleven before 
children begin to be able to anticipate that in the future they may regret that um, the, their their previous decision. So this idea that well, I hope in that box there's not even a bigger prize because I don't want to regret my current uh, yeah. the decision I made today. So um, so I, I find that all very interesting that that we're not actually uh, and it kind of tracks with stages of cognitive development, let's say, right? As, uh, as you're an infant and you grow to, into toddler, yes, you're making what you can say might be a type of decision by being able to discriminate uh, at the age of, say, two uh, between the color red and the color blue or between a circle and a square. But that's more uh, about uh, judgment. It's more about recognition. It's really not decision making. And so the first real signs of being a decision maker start to emerge around the same time children develop theory of mind around, you know, three, four, five years old. And this also just happens to be about the same time they begin to be able to experience regret. And so, and this makes sense, of course, that the, our decision making abilities, the way they naturally develop over time is as a infant to a toddler to a child to an adolescent, you have um, go, you go from uh, more simple decisions to more complex decisions. And some research uh, I read a couple of years ago is now we believe that as far as forming our full mental capacity for decision making doesn't really uh, until we're our mid twenties. This is what I was going to ask. Yeah. Because obviously um, I, I'm very curious about this topic now because, you know, you'll hear a lot of things in society about, okay, people should need to be a certain age before they make, you know, X decision. Right. And so that's kind of what I was going to ask. Okay. You've talked about the stages of it three to four years old. Do we learn you know, to regret at maybe nine through 11, we can start to anticipate regret. Then I guess, what are the next stages? Like if there are any between the ages of 11 and up to maybe our mid twenties, I have heard that before too. Like a brain isn't fully developed until we're around 25, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know. But um, are, are, there, are there then other like distinct stages, you know, throughout our teen years that we advance in our decision-making abilities? Uh, no. Um, not that I, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm not a neurologist and, uh, a lot of times I try to avoid talking about the brain and I try to talk more about the concept of the mind. Um, and as far as additional stages, um, what I would say is that we, we do see certain markers, uh, such as puberty, right? Because once testosterone is released into the body, uh, that can, impact the decisions we make or estrogen and so forth. Um, but as far as some sort of distinct cognitive stage of development, um, no, I, I'm not aware of it. And to be honest, the, the research on our uh, inability to be fully functioning until the mid twenties, um, I'm, skept I'm skeptical of that re research. Um, there's also an idea here, uh, that I kick around in my own head and maybe you guys have some thoughts on this, but, uh, delayed maturation going on 
mm-hmm. in which uh, because of the environments that we've set up, uh, we are, uh, people are experiencing uh, less ability, a delayed ability to make uh, decisions uh, that our ancestors were more capable of. Um, and that seems to be taking place. This is really interesting now that, and, um, and, and I'm like jumping to conclusions about why you might be skeptical, for example, that it takes until our mid twenties to, you know, fully develop our decision-making capabilities or whatever. But cause now that I'm thinking about this, it's like, well, yeah, obviously, okay. As humans, we're living longer lives on average now, but if you look at it, what was I listening to the other day where they, I think they talked about like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was 24 years old when you, I mean, was it like when he wrote the declaration of independence or something like they were talking about all of these, um, different historical figures that were very, very young. And obviously, you know, way back in the day, you would have rulers who were, you know, 20 years old, or even much less than that, or whatever. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, in that sense, it does, it makes sense that no, we shouldn't need to be in our mid 20s as human beings before we can make important decisions or before we developed our decision making capacity. It's just, it's interesting, you know, how we had leaders who were 20 years old back, uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago. And then now, you know, all of our last two presidents are in their upper to mid to upper 70s here in the US. And like, it's the, it's the total opposite. But um, I don't know. So yeah, just kind of a, a stupid laughing point I wanted to share there. Um, but I wanted, I guess, did you have I, I any? Wanna, Go ahead. There. I want to jump in here. I want to yeah. jump in here because I, I think I, I find these very fascinating. And I, Richard, do you think these has to do any, it, it, it has to do with our perception of time that as we, you know, as we grow older, for example, uh, you know, I'm 37 now. How old are you, Richard? Oh, man, I don't want to say, but I'm 50. I'm 52. You're 52. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I've, as I've as I've come to this age, I realize that I do, mm, in a way, pay more attention to the decisions I make because now I have a wholly different a whole different relationship to time to my future. You know, I remember that back in my twenties, I was not projecting my future because I I think I think it has to do with not having experienced enough years to actually feel that I'm gonna get to that age. Right. Um, I believe our, our, our the way we are programmed, the conditioning that we have by by media and by in a way, and maybe also growing up here in Colombia, that was a violent country as I was growing up. The perception of time is so different, and that in a way affects the way we make decisions. What do you think about this? If I, um, if I you know, if I'm making any sense here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Um... I don't know necessarily about perception of time per se, uh, other than as a society, maybe we are uh, we are extending the degree to which we believe um, children need more time to mature. Um, because we see that instead of their life being half halfway over uh, and, and because mortality rates have, have dropped so quickly. Uh, so there's no, there's not that same uh, sense of drive or necessity to, to teach uh, how to make decisions. Um, 
that and I might not be explaining this exactly uh, the way I'd like, but the idea, maybe I'll throw out this, is the, the helicopter parent, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that we're going to, uh, we need to protect the child um, and that, uh, because we have to look at, you know, look at what the Spartans did. I mean, they were taking, they were preparing children for, for war at the ages of six or seven. Look at Alexander the Great. 17 years old and he's conquering the world well to your your idea of perception of time yeah i can say that when people were looking out and saying well look the average lifespan not that they were calculating the average lifespan necessarily mm-hmm. but they knew that life was short and that they knew that life was a lot more brutal and that they knew that they themselves may not be around long so i need to teach my offspring very quickly how to live and how to survive and how to make their own decisions because anytime uh you know the 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 next plague can come through and so we need to, to you know we need to accelerate this pace and now we've got to the point where you know child mortality rates down from 50% to you know 1% and we've just got this uh just a different framework from which we're working from, which part of it is that perception of, oh man, you're so young, you've got decades, decades left. Whereas I think maybe in our ancestors' days, uh, they didn't have that perception. So I think they were, and and I think they were much more just uh, attuned to the fact that um, the the natural process of things that when uh, a boy hits puberty or a, a, a girl hits puberty, that that was the rite of passage. And, and it was time for you to become, they didn't, in fact, I was listening, I'm sorry to kind of ramble on here, but I was listening to um, uh, uh, a, a researcher on, um, it was, it was actually, yeah, education theories of, of educational development. And they were saying that, oh, uh, uh, we didn't have the concept of teenager. You just went from child to adult. Mm. And that was in like, say the 1700s. There was no such thing as a teenager in the 1700s. You just, you know, and, and you, you were thought that as soon as you hit puberty, now you, you're an adult. You can be held accountable for adult um, things. That is really interesting. Um, and I'm thinking I, I keep, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you talk and going through my head and I'm trying to figure out exactly where you say you kind of differ from. Um, I don't know if it's the mainstream, but where you kind of disagree with the current educational psychology model. And as you can probably tell, this is something that I'm really excited to dive a little deeper into. So, you know, when you say that, that, um, yeah, your views are kind of different in terms of educational psychology than what's being pushed right now by most people, I don't know. Um, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I mean, that's more of a, you know, a, a political discussion um, that we can, is, we can talk politics here. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Really I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's that I just do believe that there's a lot of, and I've seen it. Um, uh, there's a American education research association. And I back in around 2000 and I think it was 2001 is when I first started attending the conference and I attended them quite regularly uh, up until the time that I uh, graduated. 
And then I kind of went a couple more years and I kind of started dropping off because uh, it's not that there is not good work being done in educational psychology. It's that it's simply the work is being overshadowed by the, the broader amount of work that is being published that has all to do with um, the, I, I guess you consider a very progressive uh, concepts of um, diversity, equity, inclusion being based on uh, children's identities, right? So if a mm -hmm. child has a certain skin tone um, or uh, comes from a certain background, uh, then that needs to be the priority in education versus the work about, you know, how do, uh, how do we actually learn better in terms of um, the, you know, basic skills of reading, writing, and, and, and arithmetic. We've gotten mm -hmm. away from that. Yeah, and I think that you and I, not that I know much about the area of educational psychology, but based on what I'm hearing, I think that you and I would probably totally agree on most of this stuff. I mean, I'm someone who I don't really consider myself too extreme uh, politically, but I've you know spoken on this podcast numerous times about how I I do believe that we. Um, that we're living particularly in the US, you know, where I live and just in the West in general under a, like a, a kind of extreme progressive agenda. And it, it it's it is in all aspects of life. This is just the way I feel. And um, I think that it can be dangerous because it's kind of disempowering in a lot of ways. Um, and once again, like you said, it is it is a larger political discussion that is, you know, it's it's like a 15 hour long podcast if we want to dive into all aspects of it. <laughs> right, and, right. and it would be interesting to like Go ahead, Diego. I, I want to bring it to something pra pragmatic here, see if I if I'm understanding the point. So, mm -hmm. so I, I mean, of course, uh, so continuing with the political part here, but bringing it to decision making and what you were mentioning about bias, how um, we're not including emotions. That has been kind of a trend. Um, do you think that um, maybe trying to trying to accommodate for everyone and trying to in a way, um, pass by or, or like we're, we're kind of denying that the bias is there. And like you said, some biases are in fact positive. And in, in America, in a way, trying to accommodate everyone or trying to bring anyone into equity is just, is just not natural. It's just not going to work because um, the emotion is there. And, you know, if I see you and you're from a different scene that I am, that is just a natural bias that I have there that is not going to allow me to, in a way, not feel secure with my own clan or my own scheme group. What do you what do you think about this? Yeah, well, I, I think we are that's exactly going to be the end result is the end result is by focusing on identity in so many different ways that you end up in a situation where there's a, this never ending separation of people into smaller and smaller uh, groups. And there was actually, now that, that, now that you brought this up, it actually reminds me of the podcast I listened to. And there was something about um, technology, the use of technology to, um, uh, 
and and this aspect of tribalism that was discussed. Um, and I wish I remembered more about um, how you guys had framed that, because in my opinion, the technology is actually allowing more tribalism to exist because we are now, let's just say, uh, you know, a few thousand years ago, you had approximately 150 people in a tribe. And so within a tribe, if you had an outlier, uh, somebody who said, uh, you know, hey, I really am into uh, eating, you know, human flesh, right, whatever. Um, where would they go to find like-minded people? Well, they, they couldn't go anywhere. The technology did not exist to create that type of tribe. But now any subgroup can divide into any other subgroup because we have 8 billion people of which, you know, not everybody has access to internet and not everybody's participating, but still you have a sizable enough group to where you can go out and you can find people compatible with your particular belief system. And so these little small online tribes or digital tribes are forming, uh, creating groups and driving these sort of political agendas. And to that end, this is also an interesting thing when it comes to decision making and the loss of the, the benefit and loss of technology in certain areas of expertise, meaning that now if I want to make a decision, if I decide this is what I want, I can go online and I can go opinion shopping. Oh. I can continue to shop and shop online until I find the people that say, yes, the correct decision is to get a divorce. And then I say, see, all these people agree with me. Yeah. But if uh, alternatively, if I, if I was wanting to answer shop for the opposite reasons to stay, I would just continue to shop and shop and shop until, until that point. And another point to make is that nowadays, like with WebMD, a certain amount, and it's, it's not a good or a bad thing, but a certain amount of expertise and asymmetric information um, is causing the medical community to now definitely adopt um, the concept of shared decision-making. Because now it used to be patient comes in, doctor looks and says, okay, you know, symptom, this is symptom A, B, C, and D. And based on that, based on all my knowledge, you know, this is my best guess of what you have. And here's the treatment plan. And the patient basically said, yeah, okay, because how, how would they know any, any different? But then the internet comes along, and then WebMD comes along. And now the patient goes in and says, well, you know, Doc, I know you're the expert, but, I uh, <laughs> yeah, but, 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 you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the, the symmetry of information uh, can be good in a lot of areas, and it has a big impact on decision-making. Oh, my, oh, man. My 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 moderately conspiracy theorist brain now is just churning and thinking this is really interesting when we think about just like the WebMD thing, when you think about uh, the way the algorithms work and just me as I'm someone who doesn't necessarily trust the news that much or even, you know, the most prominent Internet 
sources and things that you can search, you know, on Google or whatever, because I believe that things are skewed towards a certain agenda. But once again, getting getting very, very political here. But but I'm just thinking of how interesting that makes that when, you know, oh, well, WebMD told me this and all of the medical information I found online told me this. Um, just side point, just me rambling here. Um, I, 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 you know, I find it fascinating that that concept of decision shopping, right? I mean, yeah. It just means that uh, we have to adapt. We just like, it's a fabulous time. It's it's challenging, very challenging for every professional to be alive. But then now I understand more and more why Richard is so, um, in a way, fascinated by this topic because from all these different perspectives, right? Like what you just said, like shared decision making by doctors, right? And it just makes sense that having all that information out there. But decision shopping, wow, you know, for yeah. all well, these minor. Well, think think about not just decision shopping, but the way, you know, talk about relationships and, and the way we uh, the the way we engage with trying to find a mate. Is drastically changed by technology, the decision to mate who you will mate with, because, you know, you go to, say, a tribe of 150 people and maybe you've got a couple other tribes nearby and so you're a uh, a boy that's about to go through puberty, and how many potential mates do you have? Um, you have maybe you know out of 500 uh, people surrounding you, you know, vary by age and this that the other thing. You got say a hundred options, and everybody knows everybody. Uh, you know the history. You this and this. Now now you fast forward to today. And you go on a dating app and you can swipe through a hundred options in a few minutes, right? You've got, and so there's choice overload and there's a lot of research about choice overload that when you have too many choices, you begin to struggle to decide. The grass is always going to be greener. The next swipe, the next profile that comes up might be the one. So, yeah, technology has really uh, impacted society and the way we approach so many things in the decisions we make, and especially critical decisions like, you know, who are you going to be with? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, this opens up like five different cans of worms, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it really does. No. Well, okay. Let's maybe. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll even use the example of like choosing a partner or making decisions about how to get married, but you don't have to use this example if you want. But I was wondering now, like if you if there's a general framework that you use, if you were just giving advice to the average person about how to best make a decision, what should be considered? Do you have like a general framework that you use or that you share with people? Well, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> and, and most people might. Uh, fair enough uh, disagree with me but um elimination by aspects is a good way uh, to make uh, decisions between when you have a lot of different options out there and elimination by aspect is you know start off with what are your deal breakers what are the things that you absolutely must have in a relationship 
and and eliminate the rest. And so uh, it's it's you know applied to relationships. It's a little bit uh, more difficult because obviously there's a lot of emotion involved in relationships. And so we say, okay, well, let's just consider the factor that you must be physically attracted to the person a given. Okay, so that's not a real aspect. It's just something that you're going to you're going to have that little chemistry, that that physical attraction. Boom. But now what's important to you? And you can see a lot based on whether a person picks something more superficial or do they pick something that's more substantive. So let's just say I go, okay, well, uh, to me, it's very important to have a family. Okay, well, that's really important. So if she doesn't want to have a family, you know, all women that do not want to have a family, you eliminate that aspect, right? So you, there, there's those, those women are, are, are no longer in the dating pool for you. And then you go to the next uh, important, like maybe she has to be the same religion. You know, maybe she has to have the same value system, um, this, this, this. And believe it or not, this is actually the way, and this is why I, I, I hesitate to connect such an important decision as a lifelong commitment uh, to something such as Amazon shopping. <laughs> but that's exactly what they do. They they design their, their website to, uh, to uh, eliminate choices by a certain aspect. Um, so you start off with, well, what type of television do you want? There's thousands of televisions available. And you say, well, on my particular wall, I need it to be at least 60 inches. And as soon as you click that button, you've eliminated all the other televisions. And, and you know, and, go ahead. Yeah. Going. <laughs> no, go, go ahead. I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 uh, what is it? Stepping on thin ice here, right? Because I'm I'm comparing shopping for a TV to to lifelong commitment. And, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna step on thinner ice. So, but okay. But what I'm but I want to say here is like it's almost become that way with the use of dating apps. Because if you think about it, and choosing a partner, because you know you can go on dating apps and like. Um, you know, you, you do have your settings that you put, you know, like I want someone from the age of, you know, like in my case, it might be 24 to 38 or, you know, whatever, right. I want someone within this age range. I, you know, and they'll put like, I don't have like a height thing on there, but like, you know, people will put like, I want someone in this height range. I want someone. And like, it's not quite filtered to the point where it's like, I want someone of this religion. Like, I think they, they have like things that you can't, they won't allow you to, to do, you know what I mean? But you can filter it the same way you filter an Amazon search, you know? And, um, it's just, it's really interesting thinking about this right now, because in a certain way, the creators of these apps are allowing you to do, it. they're allowing you to do, if you're on a dating app, they're allowing you to do elimination by aspects. Now, the interesting thing is that they're keeping it politically correct enough. And the, but then obviously they can't, you know, since attractiveness is subjective, like they can't, and they can't legitimately well, they could if they wanted to be really mean about it and they wanted to create an algorithm that shows who is what level of attractiveness based on how many times they got swiped right on versus left on. But they wouldn't do that because, you know, they would get totally canceled if they did that. But like they, they can't quite make it so that it uses like attractiveness or certain, you know, physical features or, or whatever. Well, they can use height, for example. Um, but it's really interesting because they're, they kind of already do that. And so it's I don't know. I'm just I'm and he's fascinated. And I, and I I think he's not only interesting, but he's dangerous. You know, going back to the example where Richard was talking about a, a couple of tribes around me, if we were, you know, for our ancestors, 
the fact that today we have so many images going through our brain to like that serve as comparison. You know, think about that young man. He only had the tribe, so most people looked like him or his mother or his sister, right? Today, you know, if I if I start having this fetish for this Asian woman or like the Latino look, you know, the, remember you guys remember the, the Hollywood tan back in so yeah. if that's gonna mess with our brains because we're not going to desire the type of a skin that our community is going to have. And then everyone's gonna want to have some like the same kind of features. What do you guys think that's gonna do to our brains as we keep just feeding all this information to our brains. I, ju I just want to jump in real quick and say that I actually do, though, think that the dating apps and, and on, you know, having such a huge online community and Instagram, in spite of its negatives, I actually do see it as a positive thing for us because it, it, it does open up more options for all of us. But yes, there's definitely an effect on our psychology. So I just wanted to throw that out there. But yeah, go ahead if you have any comments, Richard. Yeah, well, to, to uh, Diego's point, um, and and then I want to get back to elimination by aspects on one thing, uh, but to Diego's point, and this is very much embedded in us, uh, human nature is novelty uh, is we're attracted to it. We so you know the exotic, right? It's a it's different. We this is something that when we've you, know, you go back to that guy living in a tribe, uh, he's got five surrounding tribes, and then all of a sudden. Uh, you know, a foreign, uh, you know, a, 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 a caravan comes through trading goods and, you know, here's this foreign, you know, and it's like, wow, look at, look at this person. They're so different. They've got different colored eyes and skin and so forth. And we're just naturally wired to kind of that stimulates us uh, to, to, it's a curiosity. And, and, and not just the man, not just that. I mean, everybody is uh, mesmerized by something kind of exotic and different. Um, and so that, that hardwired into us, and now we're looking at these dating apps and we're looking in, in a world that is much more interconnected. And we, we get these novel experiences much easier and much more rapidly and much more diverse Um and uh, so there is an impact there. I'm not precisely sure what it is. It could just be, uh, you know, we're adding to this idea of consumerism and that there's just so many options out there that it's beginning to wear on us uh, to not be able to make a decision. Uh, there's actually experiments on that as well. Experiments that show that when you have like, say, you know, three options of ice cream or jam or something like that uh, they actually sell more than somebody trying to sell 50 or 60 flavors uh, there was an experiment done there but to get back to the elimination by aspects uh, especially for anybody who makes it and is listening to the to the podcast uh, in defense of elimination by aspects this is natural it is, in fact, you go to the research, this is what Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, this is one of the heuristics, a very human, hardwired heuristic. So this is not something that Amazon or that me or that the dating apps is imposing upon humanity. This is a natural way that humans have made decisions for thousands of years. We naturally use this heuristic called elimination by aspects and of course 
the primary way we eliminate uh, a future partner is physical attraction. If we're not physically attracted, boom, eliminated, let's move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean the elimination by aspects thing just, it, it really does resonate with me, uh, because it is more of, okay, what are my, what are my deal breakers? Um, it's, it sounds strange, but yeah, it's oftentimes I would say probably better to look at the, what are the negatives of a certain decision and then eliminate it rather than saying, okay, let's compare the positives of two different things. Um, I guess I, I'm not sure, you know, we've, we've already been going for quite a while. And I know there was one other topic that we wanted to talk about, which kind of seems like taking a left turn, but that was the language around just the, the phrase decision-making. Um, I mean, did you guys have anything specifically that you wanted to talk about kind of before we take that left turn and maybe finish things up or? Well, I mean, I, I'll just add uh, again, one more thing to the elimination by aspects is that um, it is, it came out of rational decision-making. It came out of a rational model, but elimination by aspects as a heuristic is not rational mm -hmm. in and of itself. The fact is, is that the rational model says you fully identify the problem. Then you step two is, you know, identify all, you know, exhaustive search for all of your options. Then step three, you know, compare all of these options and, and, and determine which is the best option. Uh, and then you, by that process that, you know, step-by-step -step process, you will come to the correct decision. So elimination by aspects is not purely rational because by, by you're not going through the steps correctly. And the order in which you eliminate something changes the whole dynamic. So mm -hmm. if, if you decide that you're going to uh, buy a house and the first part is, well, it's very important that I buy it in Florida, then you've eliminated all the houses in the rest of the world. But if your first aspect of elimination is I need to buy a house that's at least 2,000 square feet, can't be less than 2,000 square feet – then you haven't eliminated all the other geographic. In, in other words, the order in which you eliminate ends up having a major influence on the outcome. And so it's not a strictly rational approach. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to really think about this more. Um, and I agree with that. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I'm thinking about it in certain in in many different I'm, aspects of life. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, I'm thinking here about I'm thinking here about people who are going to be listening to this, and if they do, if they make it this far, it is you know if it is a complicated topic for you and I, Sean, you know you as a native <laughs> speaker, I as a teacher of English, you know it is a highly complex topic sure. to understand. Just sort of the first kind of the first time you you approach it. So, mm -hmm. well. <laughs> The, the nice thing about it is I think that the, you know, the language used, though, is the type of language that um, that is easy. I'm just I'm thinking of it like for native Spanish speakers who listen to this, who, you know, are have an upper intermediate to advanced level of English. I think it's still it's it's very easy to understand the concepts because I'm thinking if I were to listen to it in Spanish, the words, you know, there's a lot of cognates in in this level of language and in, you know, psychological language and language as it relates to decision making. So I think that I think that it's still uh, the concepts are easy to understand from a language standpoint, but maybe hard 
you know, a little challenging for us to grasp um, because we need to think through them for ourselves for a while first, you know, like I need an extra cup of coffee and then I need to sit here and say, okay, so what, how am I, how, how do I need to do this differently in my day-to-day life? We're talking, we cannot forget here that we're talking to a PhD on this topic. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to be a PhD in it pretty soon though, you know, a couple more cups of coffee and I'll be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, to that point, actually, uh, you know, I don't, well, actually, this would be another left turn or right turn. It'd be a whole other conversation is I don't really think being a PhD, uh, all it means is that you've st- studied a topic, uh, you know, for an, an extended period of time, really. And so for me, you know, I didn't need a PhD. Uh, it was it was more, uh, you know, I could have just studied decision making for 10 or 15 years and I'd, uh, you know. Yeah, have the same uh, information. So not sure that uh, I guess I don't know. I mean, going through and and being taught certain ways of, of thinking and statistics and so forth does does help. But anyway, yeah, um, let's uh, well, let's just do that. That topic quick that we talked about in terms of making a decision versus taking a decision, because you made an interesting point when we were kind of, you know, previewing everything here that that um in english at least well at least in okay american english we say to make a decision and then in the uk as i understand it they say to take a decision to take a decision i'm my british accent's bad i won't even i'm not doing it any justice but <laughs> but um and then obviously like in every other language or culture that i've i've learned about it's usually to take a decision tomar una decisión you know in spanish and um and then you were talking about find a decision i think in german um yeah, elaborate on that a little bit. Right. So one of the things uh, when I was trying to put together some material was I said, well, look, if I'm going to be uh, presenting myself as knowledgeable in uh, decisions and decision making, I-, I really need to dive into uh, the terms themselves and-, and not necessarily just use the textbook definitions, but really do a deep dive and and kind of look at um, you know, what are, where did these terms come from? What did they originally mean? How did they, you know, the, the etymology, how did it evolve over time? And then how might, uh, language impact that and how might culture impact that? And, uh, so I started looking into it. And one of the first things that, that came up was, um, and I, I find this fascinating is, uh, you know, what is the actual meaning to decide? Um, so the the term decide is two components, the D-E and then the C-I-D-E. So you've got D oh. and then side. And right. so um, the D-E actually means to cut away, cut off yeah. or of. Yeah. But then side, C-I-D-E, it means to kill. It means to eliminate. And you can see that in other words that are very similar. Homicide, see, um, to yep. kill someone else. Genocide, to kill a population. Pesticide, kill insects. Patricide, kill your father. So C-I-D-E in decide is to make the other options uh, in, in effect eliminated, uh, no longer available. And so, you know, that's one of the things I find interesting because, um, especially when it comes to regret, 
one of the ways to manage regret is to uh, leave your uh, allow the decision to be reversible. So if you if if you can reverse a decision, mm-hmm. it's a way to lessen the the potential of regret. And there's another study though about selecting art and having the ability to, um, I think it was photographs, uh, and the ability to reverse and to go back to the, um, and and say, no, I'd like to switch out this art, this piece of art for this piece of art versus the piece of art that you select is permanent. You cannot switch it back out. And they found out that people were actually more satisfied and happier when they were not allowed to switch when they had made a Mm. firm decision. So there's a, there's a a counterintuitive idea between regret and happiness uh, and the way we manage those. Um, But this all of course, you know, traces back to the discussion on language. You know, what does it technically mean, technically mean to make a decision? What does it technically mean to decide? And then we add on to that the synonym of choice. So what's the difference between a decision or a choice? Well, you know, you look back into the, the roots of choice coming from French and Old English, and there's a, it's to, at least in some uh, aspects, it's to test or to taste. So a choice, in, in theory, is a little bit much more reversible. So, you know, then if we if we move past the word decide and we get back into decision making, you find that, yes, um, in the U.S. and for some reason only in the U.S., we we term it. uh, We have the term to make a decision, decision making. And, you know, everybody else says and in Spanish to take a decision. And then but I found it interesting in German to find a decision. And then in Mandarin. Um, it is, uh, you take the symbols and it's decision policy. And I found that, found that interesting because to me, uh, a policy seems to be as if it's more permanent. It's a policy towards anytime those same factors come together, you, there's a policy in place that this is the decision you should make because, you know, it's the same exact conditions. So why would you not make the same decision? Uh, and, you know, side note, I was actually talking to my sister about this yesterday. And she says, well, it could also be that, um, you know, policy is a group effort. You're making, you know, more of a collectivist decision than an individualistic decision, which is something we've talked about in the past, differences in culture and how that can influence decision making as well. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of parts of that that kind of resonate with me. One part that actually did was when you talked about how when we we make a decision, like we're actually happier when there is not a choice of like backing out or when we can't take the decision back. Because um, I've, I've talked about this in different aspects of life. How I find now that actually... Uh, well, one of the things that I like to say is that responsibility is more valuable than freedom, just meaning that like, in certain aspects of life, once we just make a decision or a commitment and stick firmly to it, 
even though a lot of us were taught to think, oh, well, it's better to have freedom of all this choice and whatever. In my experience, that just kind of like leads to, you know, more confusion and less overall fulfillment. But this is me and my own, you know, psychological stuff, which has no sort of formal education behind it, just stuff that I've kind of, you know, learned about myself, I think. But I found that interesting because there was part of what you said that that seemed um, to go along those same lines. And then the cultural differences are definitely interesting as well. When you look at it as more of well, like, like either a policy or like a community type decision. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That is, that is fascinating. You know, when you think about the time, that, the times that we're living and the, the development of the West towards a more individualistic society, I can totally see it when it comes to China and those Asian countries seeing themselves as part of the group, uh, right? Uh, placing the benefit of the group above their own. Um, but then, like, where do we go with this information? Because they stayed in a kind of a communist mentality you know i don't want to bring it to politics but um um i mean yes it has its benefits because then uh, it's a decision and we're, we're we're acting as a group and but then we're missing out on so many things that we can develop in our individualistic uh kind of um uh, pursuit of life and our own adventures and our own desires right i find this where are we going to go with it? I think is is up to each culture, but also up to each individual, especially here in the West, to understand what makes you, um, you know, what's your drive. Because thinking about like when you make a decision, for example, buying a home, buying a home in, in your in your home city, but then, you know, like the freedom that we have today of like what Richard has done in the last ten years, being able to move and decide which community he fits best the, the, the climate the the environment the, what do you you know those are my thoughts on that well i mean so a couple of things one just you know going off of uh uh what you said diego um do you do you believe that uh the digital nomad individualistic lifestyle is more prevalent in the West, or do you do you see it happening in um, uh, countries that are more collectivist? And I mean, I think you know it's kind of a self-evident answer that that. And same with buying a house. Um, if we're in a collectivist, when you buy a house, you're going to be thinking about the future. That hey, uh, I need a bigger house because uh, we're going to have extended family here. I'm going to stay closer to my family. It's a more collectivist uh, system versus the individualistic who says, I'm going to buy a web, one bedroom. It's going to be a studio um, because of that. And there's actually a really good book um, that was recommended to me by uh, Gary Klein from Naturalistic Decision Making, and it's called The Geography of Thought. And it really taps into how the environment into which we are born uh, and including geographically speaking, um, a lot of times drives this concept of more or less individualism. If you are born into, and, and this goes back, you know, again, we're going into ancient history here, but if you're born into a rugged mountainous area where you know people have to congregate in smaller groups, uh, you see a more individualistic 
um, uh, expression. And if you were born in areas with flatter plains and, and wider open areas, a more collectivist, right? Now to, uh, to Sean's point about freedom versus responsibility, I like to use the idea and not closing out a decision. I think there, there's a, a healthy balance between freedom of responsibility and an example I'll put out there for discussion is the example of the hoarder. If you have someone who collects more and more and more and more things and will not throw anything away, that is somebody who's not willing to make a decision. They're not willing to take responsibility. They're not, they just want, they, they, it's just freedom because they never, they never want to take responsibility. And what happens? They get to an unhealthy state where they've got so much trash, so much garbage, so many things in their house that they their mind has to be cluttered and full versus the person who, you know, throws things away and says, okay, I'm killing that off. I'll never see that again. That's going to the trash bin. And I think there's just a, a normal, healthy balance with most people. They keep things that they need. They throw things away and you don't have that over accumulation of, of, of basically garbage. And let's just translate that to a more of a mental metaphor of, you know, garbage in your head because you're just, you, you want freedom and you're never taking responsibility and you're never committing to a particular path. Yeah. But now, and, but you said you think that there in general is uh, there, you do, that we should have a balance of it. Did I understand that part correctly? That we should have a yeah. balance? Yeah. I think because if, if all you're doing is, um constantly um not leaving yourself any options to uh reverse decisions then you run this idea of um uh es escalation of commitment and this idea that you uh will never give up on a goal ever right and so, well, if, if, you know, and I've actually written an article about this, like, when should you give up on a goal? And they, you know, there's research on this. They've used people that were trying to conceive and have a, a child. And at certain age, you have to say, uh, yeah, you know, I, I it's just not going to happen because I'm a woman in, you know, approaching my 40s or, or whatever, uh, my mid 40s. At what point, and these, this is the group that they used to research with, and they tried to investigate, you know, what are the things that would give them reason to, to take a different path, to, to give up on that goal, and, uh, you know, what were the, the, the after effects of that? And they, yeah. discovered, they discovered that as long as the, the, what really helped was if the person had the ability to step back and come up with, at least in their own mind, a goal of um, equivalent value that they could switch to. Mm. Um, and then they would not suffer uh, things such as depression and, and kind of the negative effects of, of giving up on a goal. But as far as, um, you know, the amount of freedom that you want to keep versus you know, the amount of responsibility, um, you know, I just think there's a balance somewhere in there. 
I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I have learned that. And I like that thought about learning when to, I'd be curious to, to read more and learn more about that, about when to, you know, give up on certain goals or go a different direction. Um, I'm thinking this time always flies when you're having fun. I'm thinking we should start to wrap this up because we've been doing this for an hour and a half, basically. Um, yeah, yeah, I told you, I told you, I think, I think yeah. we're going to ask Richard to come back to the podcast. Um, keep on discussing other other things but um yeah i guess okay well yeah let's let's wrap things up i guess first thing i want to do richard tell you know the listeners where they should follow you follow you either on the internet social media yeah what's the best way to find more about you uh just decisionskills.com all one word and from there you can find my youtube channel you can find my udemy courses um you know you can uh find my LinkedIn profile. Um, you can always, uh, you know, just my name, Richard Feenstra, pretty easy to Google. I'm one of the, the first, uh, links that pops up. So, um, and anybody who has any questions about decision-making, you know, you can reach out, contact me and, you know, as a disclaimer, uh, absolutely nothing that I said, is set in stone. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a believer uh, that uh, knowledge is dynamic and that, uh, you know, things that I have said, uh, definitely there's, uh, you know, things that uh, I'm not correct about. So uh, feel free to push back, reach out and challenge me on that. Yeah, I love that. And I'm just going to spell out your last name for the listeners. So it's F-E-E-N-S-T-R-A, Richard Feenstra. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I really thank you for your time. This was this was a fun conversation. Um, I don't know, Diego, Richard, any, you know, final thoughts to add? No, well, I, I, um, I'm very glad that we got to do this. We've been wanting to do this for a long time with Richard. And finally, I made the decision of jumping back in and participating in the podcast um as as you said sean you know there are so many people that are going through medellin that are so interesting that are choosing the city as you've chosen the city before to come and visit and now you know people like richard he, he finds this as a base um and there are so many things that that you guys when you come here you learn from us but also i believe this is my 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 motivation here is to act as a bridge in that way um, you never know. This can inspire someone to go deeper into these books, into this knowledge, and then to ask themselves questions. So English is here just an excuse to to deeper thinking and to curiosity. So thank you again, guys, for your time. Yeah, awesome. And this, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll publish this episode as soon as you send me the recording, Diego. Within it'll be probably within the next three days. I'm not sure which day exactly. And then Richard, if you don't mind, I might just, you know, put like, you know, I'll take like your, maybe your LinkedIn profile picture and like put it up on the episode. Um, what do they call it? And just like the description, you know, that way people can be like, oh, who's that guy? You know, and we'll catch a little more attention with that um, if you don't mind. So yeah, not all, not at all. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. Yeah. I would look forward to it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Diego. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. All right. You guys have a good rest of your day.